It's wonderful to be here, and uh, as Melody said, happy September. It's kind of hard to believe that that's actually the reality, but here we are. Um, we're jumping back into our series in the Gospel of John called Full of Grace and Truth. And if you're new, we've started the Gospel of John exactly a year ago this Sunday, and we have a, a series overview in the back, if, you've got, if, you, if you'd like to know where we've been thus far in the Gospel of John, on the back table is a series overview document that gives a, an outline and talks about some major theological themes and things of that sort if you need a refresher. Um, but I just want to say something that we value deeply here is preaching God's word book by book, verse by verse, going through and listening to what the Lord wants to teach us as we go in depth in the scriptures. So we're jumping back into John and we're at an exciting turning point in this book. Now, chapter 13 is where we're going to be this morning in the Gospel of John. And it begins a section that is eight chapters long and covers only four days during the Passover festival in Jerusalem. So the Apostle John, as he's writing this gospel, he slows down the narrative of what's happening in these events. And he's zooming in on Jesus' march towards the cross. Now, up to this point in the Gospel of John, we've seen Jesus perform miraculous signs. He's turned water into wine. He's fed thousands of people. He's walked on water. He's healed the blind. He's raised the dead. And after each miracle, John records usually a lengthy section where Jesus explains the significance of the acts that he's been doing to prove that he's the word made flesh, the new temple, the bread of life, the good shepherd, the resurrection of life, and the anointed king. So in other words, you see a, a miraculous thing happen, and then you see this, this sort of debrief and explanation of what it is. Now, the coming chapters has a different approach. Rather than explaining things after the fact, in John 13 and following, Jesus sits down with his disciples at a Passover meal, and he explains to them ahead of time what's going to happen in the next three days. He's not only preparing them for the immediate moment, but he's preparing them, and therefore, because these scriptures are for us too, he's preparing us for the church age when Christ will ascend to heaven and his people will begin to follow him in a hostile and difficult world that desperately needs to know the hope of Jesus. So these coming chapters unfold what Jesus is, it's like a roadmap. It's like a, a final encouragement, a source of comfort and hope for those who will follow the crucified Messiah in the midst of a lost and broken world. So from now to December, we're going to be going through chapters 13 through 17, seeing how Jesus ministered to his disciples in this farewell uh, discourse, this farewell speech that he gives as he is in the upper room and then on his way to the cross. So let's get started. Grab your Bible. Open with me to John chapter 13. Gospel of John chapter 13. We're going to be reading 1 through 17 today, and we're jumping in at the start of the annual Passover festival in Jerusalem. And this is where the Jewish people commemorated their deliverance from slavery in Egypt more than a thousand years earlier. Now, we know from Exodus 12, which we're going to look at in a slight bit more detail later, that God's people were spared because of the sacrificial lamb's blood on the door frames of their houses, foreshadowing the coming lamb of God, Jesus Christ, whose blood was shed to forgive us our sins that we would be spared from God's wrath. So here's what we're going to see in our passage this morning as we look at John 13. 
Jesus illustrates the unfathomable depth of his love for his people by displaying his very heart of humility as he goes to the cross. He, he shows us the significance of his atoning sacrifice before it happens, and he also invites us then to follow his example of radically humble servant love. So, let's read. John 13, verses 1 through 17. Hear the word of God. It was just before the Passover festival... Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who've had a bath only need to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Here's how we're going to tackle this. This is this incredible account. Okay, what we're going to see here is Jesus does a symbolic act that does three things. It reveals to us his motivation for going to the cross in verse 1. It reveals to us his purpose for going to the cross, verses 2 through 11. And then it also reveals his expectation of his followers in light of the cross, verses 12 to 17. So this is how we're going to go through the flow of this passage, talking about Jesus' motivation, purpose, and expectation as he does this symbolic act. Okay, so let's jump right in. Let's go to that motivation, all right? So motivation for going to the cross. Go back to verse one with me. Now John, as he writes this, is careful to note the timing here. He says that the Passover festival is just about to start. Now because this event is going to be the backdrop for the next eight chapters, 
I want to take a few moments here to say a few words about the significance of Passover. Now, back in Exodus chapter 12, you can note that chapter down if you'd like to go read this later. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and even though Moses and Aaron had repeatedly told Pharaoh this command from the Lord, let my people go so that they may worship me, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and God brought a series of plagues upon Egypt because Pharaoh would not give in. Now, the last plague that finally broke Pharaoh was the striking down of the firstborn sons of every Egyptian household. And yet God spared the Israelites because he commanded them to sacrifice a lamb and paint the blood on the door frames of their houses so that the Lord would pass over them. That's where we get the term. Passover is literally that idea that the Lord commanded them as they saw this miracle of what he had done to commemorate this event for generations to come. So let me just explain a little bit deeper about what is said in this Exodus 12 passage. Listen to what Exodus 12 describes. You'll see it on the screen. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. Did you catch the end there? God's saving act is cause for worship. His sparing them his grace, his mercy in that moment, in their moment of greatest trouble, in their weakness, in their bondage and helplessness in Egypt, God did a mighty act to save them. Now, why? Why would he do that? We need to go back maybe just one more step in the Exodus story, okay? So we just talked about the end of the Exodus story. They're just about to leave Egypt. Let's go back a few more chapters because immediately before, and if you know the story, immediately before Moses encountered God at the burning bush, this is what the text says in, in Exodus 2, 23 to 25, that sets up the whole event. Why is this happening? The text says, The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Friends, this is critical. In this story in the book of Exodus, this deliverance from slavery in Egypt. The Passover festival is celebrating this in John 13. The reason God acted to save his people is because he heard their cries, he remembered his promise, and he was concerned about them. Do you see that in the text there? This reveals God's very heart. Friends, I need you to hear this about God's heart for you. He hears your cries. He is trustworthy in his promises. His heart is full of concern and compassion 
for you when you cry out to him. Even when we feel broken and lost or we stumble in sin or we wonder, is all hopeless? I don't know if you felt like that. I felt like that. Be assured that God is trustworthy to hear your cries precisely because he loves you. Friends, the reason why I wanted to talk about this background in Exodus, John's, it's not an accident that the Passover is happening right at this moment as Jesus is going to the cross. Because this same heart of God to hear and remember and have concern and compassion and love for you is reflected in Jesus, God himself in the flesh who came to lead a new exodus. He is the new Passover lamb. He's the new Moses. He's the compassionate savior who hears our cries for help. And in Jesus Christ, God himself has come. Friends, listen to these opening words again now, as I've talked about that background from John 13 that set up the entire next eight chapters, the whole rest of this, of this teaching by Jesus and his march to the cross. Pick it up in verse 1, okay? It was the Passover festival, and then listen to these words. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world. And go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Do you see Jesus' love? Coming so straightforwardly in this passage. Okay, there's a couple things I want to point out here that explain, number one, who Jesus loves. But then also, to what extent. And that's what's really communicated in verse 1 here. So the who is, uh, John does a deliberate thing here. He draws a contrast between some specific words. The words, his own, and the words, the world. Okay? We've seen this before in John 10, verse 3, where Jesus, the good shepherd, it uses a similar language that the good shepherd calls out his own sheep by name and leads them. There's a sense of, of Jesus speaking to his sheep, calling them out from the world and gathering his flock. So Jesus is doing a work through his death and resurrection to draw out from the world a new people, a redeemed community of disciples called the church who live in contrast to the world because we belong to a different kingdom. <laughs> and so what, what John makes very clear here is the object of Christ's love as he goes to the cross, are those who would believe in his name and trust him as Savior. Listen, friends, he's doing this for us. It's his grace. Okay, the other is to what extent. John says these words. Having loved his own who are in the world, look at the end of this, this line. He loved them to the end. This word end, it describes a couple different things. It describes the degree which Jesus loves and also the length of time. So the degree that Jesus loves is that he loves to the uttermost with an inexhaustible love. He loves to that greatest extent possible. And then in, in terms of, of the duration or a time sense, he loves to his last breath. 
with an undying love. So as John says, he loved them to the end. What's coming up is the cross. And he says, you want to know how much Jesus loves? He loves to the uttermost and he loves to his last breath. Friends, I think it's really difficult for us to grasp the depth of Christ's love for us as he goes to the cross. The gravity of that is just so incredible. What could possibly motivate him to do such a thing? We are unworthy. <laughs> we haven't done anything that would deserve God's favor. God doesn't need something from us. We don't have anything to contribute to make him better. We aren't so lovely that God has to show love to us. It is by pure grace that we're loved. Some of you know the Puritan theologian John Bunyan. He wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. Or, uh, it is, it's incredible. So John Bunyan wrote this. He said, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, to love humanity is amazing because we are so low, so mean, so vile, so undeserving. He says, Love from Christ requires no beauty in the object of the beloved. It is an act of himself and from himself, not dependent on us. The Lord Jesus sets his heart to love us. Friends, because Jesus loves you as an act of his grace, you can rest assured that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are secure in that love. You didn't earn it. So you can't destroy or lose it or, or damage it. It's not something that you can get on the scale and weigh. Was I good enough for God to love me? You get to throw that scale away and say, oh my goodness, God loves me purely out of his grace. Whew. That is so freeing. It's not dependent on me or you. And this is what John Bunyan says. He says, Christ will love to the end of our lives, to the end of our sins, and to the end of our temptations, and to the end of our fears. That's the extent of his love. Jesus has set his affection upon his own. And he's good on his promises. He hears our cries. He has compassion to save even through the humiliation of the cross. So how is Jesus going to illustrate that reality? Remember, what he's doing now is he's, he's like giving his disciples the preview of what's happening, what's coming. How does Jesus illustrate what he's going to do on the cross? He shows us the purpose of his coming death through the simple act of washing feet. So let's go to his purpose for going to the cross, verses 2 through 11. Okay, go back to the text here in John 13. Now, the Passover meal is in progress. Judas, he's already prompted by Satan to betray Jesus. So look at verses 3 to 5. Let me read them again. Look at your text. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water in a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Okay, pause there for a moment. Did you notice 
how John describes Jesus' authority and power in verse 3. All things are under Jesus' power. What? All things are under his power. Can you grasp the gravity of this? We often think so many things are out of control these days. We feel that. But no, all things are under the Lord of the universe. All will bend the knee. All, every tongue will confess. All sin and evil will be destroyed. He has the power to do that. And with this kind of power, with this knowledge that Judas was going to betray Jesus, you'd think that Jesus would just blast Judas right at this moment. He knows he's looking across the table at his betrayer. And all power is his. And what does he do? He gets up during the meal and he literally takes the job of a slave. Let me explain what's going on here, okay? A typical Jewish meal was held around a very low table and there were thin mats that the guests would lay on, usually with their left arm supporting their body and sort of their right arm available to eat food from the table. And so as they would, would, would lay there, like at, reclining at the table, their legs and their feet would sort of be fanned out around the outer edges of the room because their head and their arms obviously is near the table to eat. So you can picture this. Now, foot washing is a task normally reserved for the lowliest servant. Now, people wore sandals in the first century. And they walked on dirt roads and were covered with animal feces and trash and whatever else got thrown into the streets, okay? So your feet would be pretty gross. And as you saw later in the text, even if you took a bath, by the time you got to your friend's house, your feet would be filthy. Now, you have to understand, peers did not wash one another's feet in this culture. In fact, Jews wouldn't even allow a Jewish slave to wash their own feet. It was the job for a Gentile slave. Now, you have to understand, there's been lots of research done about this. Scholars have found zero evidence, not one instance, where a Jewish, uh, in a Jewish or Roman source, of a superior washing the feet of an inferior. It's like that, it literally is unprecedented. In all of the literature that's available to study the Roman world and the ancient Jewish world, it's never happened. At least that we know of, right? So you have to understand that this was a complete shock. That Jesus would do a task reserved for the most reviled person in society. And yet here Jesus is taking off his outer garment, wrapping a towel around his waist. This is literally the way a slave dresses. It was considered reviled to have that kind of clothing on. And he goes around washing one by one the feet of his disciples, including Judas. Now, you have to understand, okay, this would have been so embarrassing for the disciples that it probably left them in stunned silence. But never fear, Peter is here. Because <laughs> if you know Peter, he's kind of a, a speak first, think later kind of guy, okay? 
Peter speaks up and he, when, when no one else knows what to say, don't worry, Peter knows what to say, right? Now in verse 6, when Jesus comes around to Peter's spot at the table, he says what everyone else is probably thinking. He says, Jesus, there's no way you're doing this to me. How, how could this be? I won't let you, and the way the text is actually written in the Greek is emphasizing this you and me in the sentence. I won't let you, the Messiah, wash my feet? He says it doesn't make sense. Yet Jesus' response that we see in this washing of his disciples' feet is a symbolic act that points to something greater. Look at verse 7. After Peter tries to say no, Jesus says, You do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Friends, this is a premonition of what the disciples are going to feel in about 24 hours. Here they are at the Last Supper. In 24 hours, they're going to watch Jesus be taken down dead from a cross. He's saying, you don't understand what I'm doing yet, but later you will. That's what you're going to feel for the next couple days. They're going to watch Jesus be arrested, tried, beaten, crucified, buried. They're not going to understand what he's doing, but after his resurrection and ascension, it's going to become a whole lot more clear. In the same way, Jesus is saying this symbolic act that is so shocking a reversal that the Messiah would go around and, and wash your feet, that this points to a greater purpose of his love for them. You might know this passage from Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 to 8, where it says that Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in an appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. God himself, his humility is seen in the incarnation, taking on human flesh, entering our mess. It's seen in his walk to the cross. This is why Jesus says to Peter in the very next verse, verse 8, unless you, I wash you, you have no part with me. In other words, friends, this symbolic act of foot washing, it points ahead to this symbol that points ahead to the perfect cleansing of sin that we will receive from Jesus as he dies on the cross. And he says, unless you're washed clean, unless you, you, you allow me to do that washing of you, that on the cross it will be by my blood that I will wash you clean. If you don't do that, you have no part with me. In other words, this is a calling to full repentance and surrender in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Trust in Jesus. Receive the free gift of salvation. Give your life to him and then take up your cross to follow him. He says, unless you're washed clean by me, you don't have any part. Okay, this is where we get to the final part of our text, where Jesus now applies this symbolic act as he talks about his expectations of us, his followers. Okay, so let's go to that last section, the expectation. This is going to be verses 12 to 17. So I love how the story takes a turn here, all right? So after this interaction with Peter and the whole thing finishes up, Jesus finishes the washing of the disciples' feet. He puts his regular garments back on. He reclines at the table again with these men in awkward silence. <laughs> you can imagine what's happening. 
And he looks at them and says these words, Do you understand what I've done for you? Of course they don't understand. This, okay, you got to think about what's happened over the last three years. This miracle worker, this sage teacher, the one who so captivated them with his power and authority, the very son of God has treated them as though they were the honored guests. And he was merely a servant. How could that be? How could he love with this kind of love? See, Jesus, you have to understand this as Jesus looks at who we are. Jesus is someone who doesn't ask his disciples to do something he hasn't already done himself. When he says, I want you to go live and love with a sacrificial love, he's done it in the ultimate sense. See, this isn't just merely good leadership skills. <laughs> do what, you know, you ask your subordinates to do, that kind of thing. It reveals the glorious humility of Jesus. Remember, all things are under his power, and yet he went to the cross for you and me. How do we respond in light of this? What do we do? I recently heard a story of two giants of the evangelical movement over the last 50 years, uh, Kenneth Concer and Carl Henry. They're kind of big names in the uh, history of evangelicalism in America. And these two pastor theologians, they were pioneers in training pastors and supporting churches and establishing a thriving movement of gospel-centered leaders across America and across the world. Now, towards the end of their careers, when they were in their 80s, they were being interviewed in front of a bunch of ministry leaders and pastors and, and such at a conference about their longevity, about their influence. How do you walk with Jesus over these many, many years? And so the interviewer asked them in front of this huge crowd of people, how do you remain humble and teachable and motivated to serve others after decade and decade of success and fruit and things that you could laud about your own career? So there was some awkward silence. They had been answering questions for like an hour at this point, and all of a sudden they just, it's like they stopped. And these two leaders, they had, they had so much they could brag about. They could make their work their identity if they wanted. They could have demanded that others serve them because they're so important. And friends, after a few seconds of silence... With tears welling up in his eyes, Carl Henry muttered into the microphone, How can anyone be arrogant when they stand next to the cross? Friends, here was a man who knew deep in his heart the answer to Jesus' question, Do you know and understand? Do you understand what I've done for you? Carl Henry saw the scorn of the cross, the humiliation of the Son of God, the love of Jesus to the uttermost. And when he realized what Jesus had done for him and he stood in the shadow of the cross every day, his whole world is turned upside down. And humility, surrender, Serving, sacrificing. These are the only proper response. Full surrender to Jesus.
Friends, this is the kind of impact that this shocking reversal of the Messiah taking the role of a servant. Jesus makes clear his expectations now as we follow him, as we stand in the shadow of the cross and what Jesus has done, that we would follow his example. And he does it with two metaphors, okay? Look at verse 16. He uses these metaphors of the servant and the master, and then he uses the language of the messenger and the sender. So you got to understand the servant and the master language is typical of households or businesses. And the messenger sender language is typical of a government or a kingdom. It's this idea of being an ambassador or an emissary from an embassy. And so in John 13, Jesus is making very clear what he expects of his followers after his death, resurrection, and ascension. Okay, remember, this whole section of chapters 13 to 17 are Jesus' encouragements and instructions for his disciples as they're going to navigate the establishment of the church in the midst of a hostile world. And this is what Jesus so boldly demonstrated to his disciples. He says... If the Lord of the universe is willing to wipe the dirt and trash and excrement off of your feet. If he's willing to go to the cross to be beaten and mocked and spit on and brutally killed as he bears the wrath for your sin. If he loves you that much. He says to his disciples, show the world that you're my disciples by being willing to do the same. Show them what I am like. Let them feel and know the love and compassion and humility of your Savior through your own sacrificial actions and selfless concern for others. He's saying that by you following that example, you will point them to Jesus to be a witness to his work on the cross that is the only saving hope. You see, he says the servant is not above the master. If Jesus loves to the uttermost with an inexhaustible love, going to the cross to his very last breath, how could we think our path would look different? To walk the way that he walked, to show the world what that kind of love looks like. Here's what I want to do. I want to close for a moment with a practical framework, something that could help just get your thinking going as you, as you look at this, what Jesus is teaching and you go out and try and live this out. I think it can help us understand how we walk that same path, like, an, like, a, like a, a messenger or an emissary who represents the king. There's a really good book, I've mentioned it once before, that's written by Paul David Tripp called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. And it, it describes how we, as broken people, minister to other broken people and how we stand in the truth of the gospel in the midst of that. And this is what he says about ambassadors of Jesus. He says ambassadors will represent the message of the king. In other words, do my words underline or undermine Jesus? The things that I say, are they in line with and bringing the message of Jesus in all that I say? Ambassadors will also represent the methods of the king. In other words, how are my actions or responses pointing to Jesus as people not just hear my words, but they see my deeds that align with his way and the way that he lived. And then thirdly, ambassadors will represent the character of the king. Are the desires of my heart aligned with Jesus? 
There's a powerful witness in the world when what you say brings the message of the king, what you do represents his very methods, and then as your heart represents his character. This is what the world needs to see as we do like Jesus did and wash feet. Let's pray. Lord, um, we're going to go to the table now, and as we celebrate communion together, as we think about what you have done and your incredible sacrifice for us, your humility that is displayed, Lord, draw us into the, uh, a fresh vision of your humility that we would walk that path. That it's, it's not merely an example in what you've done, Lord. It is an example, but it points as we're going to taste and touch and see these elements. They all point to the beautiful truth that you have come and died. And you've rose again for our salvation. Let us be your ambassadors let us see your blessing as we walk in these ways to show the world what you're like. In Jesus' name, amen.